This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future. I'm happy today to be talking with Mark Hirschberg. Mark, you are, among many other things, the CTO of Averon, a cryptographer, a university instructor, and recently you are also the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Thought You. First of all, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. And I heard you're also a ballroom dancer from reading your biography. Yes, in my 20s, I used to compete all over the U.S. and uh, even made it to Europe a couple times for some ballroom events. Everybody is always a um, mix of skills and experience. That's awesome. It was definitely a, a fun hobby to have and even helped me in the development of some of my professional skills. Oh, really? I'd love to hear more about that when we get to the skills. I'd like to start first with the reason behind the book. What did you feel was missing from secondary education? About 21 years ago, when I was interviewing candidates, and I was hiring primarily software engineers, but also some marketing and finance people, when I would ask them a technical question, I don't just mean software questions. I'd ask them a question about their discipline. They'd give me an answer because they learned that in school. But then I would ask questions like, what makes someone a good teammate? What are the skills that you would want to see in an effective leader? And I would get blank stares because we don't talk about this within our primary or secondary education or collegiate education. And at the same time, MIT was developing a new course and had gotten feedback from a number of our corporate partners, companies that come and hire MIT students. And they said, look, you're obviously, your students are smart. They're very intelligent. They have some great domain knowledge in chemistry, physics, economics. But there's a number of skills we're not seeing. And this includes leadership, communication, teamwork, networking, negotiation skills, all these skills corporate America is asking for. It's not just MIT. Feedback, this has been given to universities across the U.S. And if you look at the history of universities, which we don't have time to go into, and also of primary and secondary education in the U.S., it was formed for a very different reason. And so these skills are not emphasized, even though companies are demanding it. And companies themselves, while they want it, they're also not training it. So we have this massive skills gap that we really need to address and Eventually, I hope the education system does. But in the meantime, we have to supplement it in other ways. And I guess it's in a way the, a little bit of the almost like the curse of knowledge, right? We produce and, and I don't think it's limited to the, the U.S., although this is the case you're referring. But we produce people with a lot of technical knowledge who don't necessarily have these tools that you call success skills. And I think you're trying to emphasize that because it's not just about the soft skills or the relational. It, it is the skills that help you progress in your career. Absolutely. Let's think about an extreme, almost cartoonish example. 
when you have some brilliant coworker, the kind of crazy level genius who comes up with these great ideas, but they just don't know how to relate to other people. They don't know how to communicate those ideas effectively. They don't know how to explain them to people who aren't also geniuses. And this person might be producing great ideas, great work, but if he can't effectively communicate, if he can't build the relationships and coalitions within the company and outside, those ideas are going nowhere and this person becomes less effective. Now, this is an extreme example, but all of us, we have some strengths, some capabilities, some unique knowledge and experience that lets us provide value. But the ability to actually deliver that value depends on these other skills about having, say, a network within the company to to better understand what the challenges are and socialize what our solutions are. It's about being able to synthesize solutions that come from multiple disciplines. It's about being able to negotiate, not simply the classic sliding a number across the table, but how to actually negotiate even with coworkers on how to divide up projects and tackle things and form these relationships. That's going to make us more effective and take those ideas we have and make them deliver success to the organization as a whole. And I'm, I know we're going to go through the specific uh, scales, but when I look at the list, I'm, I'm just using myself as an example because I'm former academics. I transitioned to uh, to consulting and, and business. And when I look at the list, career planning, never learn really how to think about career planning beyond study hard, you'll get a job one day. Interviews, right? Like I had to read book and figure out how to, to say something meaningful. Networking, I was a bit shyer back then. I had to figure out how to, to engage and do that kind of small talk after reading philosophy books all day. So it's really something that I feel like I had to learn on the spot, but I would have appreciated a little nudge or a little coaching right before I had to go through a couple of embarrassing situations to figure out how to behave in the real world. I had some of those same embarrassing situations. And let's take networking as an example. Certainly here in the U.S., everyone says, oh, networking is so important. You really have to have a strong network. Everyone keeps saying this, but literally no one teaches us how to do this. You could probably ask anyone in any educational institution and they will 100% say, your network is very important. If this is so important, why do you not spend even a single hour teaching us these skills? And it's because of the antiquated view of our education system. But really, all these skills, we know they're important, and yet we're not teaching them to people. That's so true. So let's start with career planning, right? Why do people need a career plan, and how do you create one? Not having a plan is almost a guarantee of failure. Having a plan doesn't guarantee success, but it will more likely increase your chances of success. And now the common counter argument is a career is a type of thing you, you can't plan for. It just happens to you. Ask the people who say this, do you ever start a project at work and say, look, we got to do this in the next six months, but we know projects never work out as planned. So let's not bother planning. Do you know any CEO who says to the board, hey, listen, this year, instead of telling you what our plan is, Let's just see how the year unfolds and where we wind up. It's ludicrous. We all know you have to have a plan, a budget, a project plan, a strategy. We also know it's not going to work out 
exactly as you thought on day one. And this is how we need to think about our career. You start by saying, where do we want to end up? What's that long-term goal? And it's a job in the future. And that, I'd even say before that, it comes from answering a whole bunch of questions as to what's important to you. And then once you have that direction, you cascade back what are the steps to get there. Just like in our project plans, this is the outcome. This is where you want to be in six months. What are things we need to do to get there? And so you create this plan. And of course, you get input from other people in creating it. Very importantly, just like our business plans and our project plans, you don't say it's set in stone. So you have this plan, but you need to regularly reflect on it, regularly assess where you are, regularly even change it. And it's okay, unlike our business plans, where we can't just change the outcome if our boss doesn't agree with it. Here, you're the boss. So if you change where you're going, if you wake up one day and say, that's no longer what I want to do, you can even change your outcome. So we want to create a plan to give us guidance so we know the direction in which we're going, but it's okay to alter the plan as you go, even altering the end state, because this is ultimately a tool for you and what makes you happy. So it's applying finally the same discipline that we do in business and project management to our own uh, projects or our life projects and knowing that things can go in a different direction. That's a great way to think about it. And it doesn't have to be as formal as a Microsoft project plan. You don't have to Six Sigma your life. Just having some guidance, a little bit of guidance will will help increase your chances of success. Now, the, the next one, once you have a plan, now it's time to put it in action. What do you call job optimization? For many of us, We think, okay, I show up to work and I do a good job and that's how the world's supposed to work. But we quickly learn that knowing how to manage your manager is important. Understanding how to fit into corporate culture. Learning how different parts of the organization work can help you work more effectively with those parts of the organization. Even dealing with corporate politics. These are skills, again, never talked about in school. But once we get into our careers, we recognize that you can be really good at what you do, but if you're not good at managing your boss, if you get tripped up by corporate politics, you become far less effective and it impacts your ability to achieve success in this job and your long-term career potential. And again, it's the kind of skills when I think about that, that's absolutely universal. If, if you go, if you talk to people of any culture, any industry, any location, we all have to understand that it's becoming almost like a tacit skills that we acquire on the fly. But yeah, I can see how everybody would benefit from that. Why stumble and learn on the fly? You mentioned how you had to, to learn some of this on the job. I certainly did. But if we can just get a little bit of a head start by planning ahead of time, by listening to podcasts like this, by reading some books, by getting some training, we're going to stumble less and we're going to accelerate faster. And I think I'd love to hear you on that, but I think these skills have something, not that they are eternal, but I think they made sense 20 years ago and they will make sense in 20 years from now. Yes, they are, they are timeless because these skills, they're not about learn to use this software, learn to, to use this process. They are about how we interact with other people. And this is based on millions of years of evolution and how we're designed to engage with others. So they're not going away anytime soon. Now, and another one also that I never really taught as a skill 
skills. But then after doing a lot of interviews, I realized that there's an art and certain things to do and not to do. So when we talk about interview, you said that being an interviewer helps you become a better interviewee. So why is that? I want to back up and, and lay the groundwork for that. Now, most of us have probably had some interview training. Certainly in college, the career offices taught us how to interview. You've probably read articles online. Here's how to answer this type of question. Here's how to sell yourself. We've seen that content. What we have not seen is the reverse. Most of us in our careers are on hiring teams. Certainly if you're a manager, but even as an individual contributor, you have to help hire other people. And we all know that If you're on a team of six and you have one person who's not great, there is roughly 16% of your team is less effective than it could be. That's a big impact. So we want to hire effectively. This is very important. But again, we have typically never trained anyone how to interview and hire people. We assume, well, you learned how to be a candidate. You've certainly sat through interviews. You had to have one to get this job. So just go in, talk to the person. You know what you're doing. You've done it before. But in fact, being an interviewer, you have a very different perspective. I always explicitly train up my teams before I have them interview. And so understanding how to think about it from the interviewer's perspective will help you be more effective in terms of what you're looking for, how to find it, and then how to bring that person into your company. Now, as a candidate, once you get that perspective, you become much more effective. I can tell you the very first time I interviewed someone, and I had no idea what I was doing, so I just sat in a room with this person and I asked some of the questions that I had been asked. And listening to the answers, I started to think, yeah, I get what this person's trying to do, but you know, that wasn't a great answer. They could have expressed it better. They, the classic case, if you've ever had a brain teaser, so many candidates sit there in silence for a couple minutes before they answer the brain teaser. As an interviewer, you're thinking, okay, I'm sitting here, I'm not learning anything while this candidate's trying to figure it out. On the other hand, if a candidate knows to talk through the brain teaser, you as an interviewer get to see how he or she thinks. And that's really what you're looking for. It's less about do they get the answer at the end. You might not realize this till you've been that interviewer. So once we look from the interviewer's perspective, once we understand what the interviewer wants, how the interviewer thinks, what the interviewer really is seeking in this question, we as a candidate become so much more effective when given that question, when given that task, when sitting on the other side of the table. So it's a little bit of reverse engineering the, the intent. That's a great way to look at, yes, reverse engineering it. And, and less about how many ping pong balls can you fit in a 747, which I still don't have an exact answer to this one. <laughs> yes, and I, I actually give that example in the book, and it's not about... You're saying, oh, it's 3.2 million. It's about thinking through how do you approach this? And maybe you've read that as a candidate and you learn this is a way to, to approach this kind of problem. But certainly as an interviewer, whether it's that problem or a different one, you know what you're looking for. You don't just want three minutes of silence and then hear 3.2 million. You want to see their thinking pattern. And when you experience that as an interviewer, again, you as a candidate will then say, ah, I know what you want. I know how to give it to you. So that leads me then to a, the other skills who's connected, because you were talking in both cases about mental models, but 
Communication. We heard that, of course, we need to express ourselves clearly. We need to be polite, communicate, engage with people meaningfully. But I think that once again, whatever we were taught was not sufficient to engage with people in the real world or in the business world. Yeah. Now, communication is a very broad topic, right? It can mean a lot of things. It can mean public speaking. It can mean writing effective emails. It can mean active listening. So it's very broad, but I really focus on what are some of the really fundamental pieces of it. And so it comes down to mental models. Let's use an analogy. If I come over to Paris and I want to give a talk, I unfortunately don't speak French. So I'm going to have to give a talk in English. Everyone listening, presumably they speak English or they wouldn't have come to the talk, but I'm asking every member of the audience to sit there, listen in English, and translate back to French. I am asking them to do extra work. couple things can happen there. One is there could be a mistranslation. There could be just a, a small difference in understanding of a particular word. I don't communicate as effectively. I'm also asking people to do a little extra mental tax. Every second they have to do a translation, and that's energy going into translation and not into digesting and understanding what the message is that I'm giving. Now, unfortunately, for me to, to learn French, that's going to take a while to be uh, sufficient uh, in French to speak there. So I might have to rely on, on that cost. When it comes to our coworkers, we're also doing this constant translation. People come with different mental models. And I'll give an example. I am an engineer. I like numbers. I like math. I talk in numbers. I talk in formulas. I have charts. This is how I think about the world. And if you want to talk to me, it needs to be analytical, at least somewhat. I want to see some numbers. You can give me a great pitch, but I'm going to say, great, break down the numbers for me. Maybe that's cost. Maybe it's timeline. Maybe it's number of units. I need to have some quantitative sense. Contrast that with, I'm going to take uh, Don Draper. If you've ever watched Mad Men, mm -hmm. Don Draper, when he would go and pitch to his clients, he would have this fantastic, he was an ad pitch man in the 1960s in this, in this fiction show. He would go and do this passionate talk and really relate on an emotional level and connect with this great vision and inspire people. And of course, he always saved the day and he always got the pitch and it was just this amazing speech. If I were to talk to Don Draper and I say, hey, let me convince you of this. I'm going to show you a bunch of charts. He's going to be bored inside of 60 seconds. Likewise, if he gives me one of his amazing talks, I'm going to say, wow, this sounds great, but now break it down for me. And that's where it's going to go, what do you mean? I don't have numbers. I had this really great talk. That's usually all I need to do. We communicate and think differently in our mental models. So it's recognizing when I want to talk to Don Draper, I need to not throw a bunch of charts at him. I need to translate, not to French in this case, but into more of that inspirational communication style. When he wants to pitch me, he needs to recognize he does need to be a little more quantitative in how he approaches. And by doing that, we're taking away some of that mental tax. We're taking one step closer to the mental models of our audience, and we communicate more effectively. Now, this is a, a very simple two-part two model, right, where you just say quantitative versus this inspirational. And, of course, we can build more complex ones. But it's understanding that we all have these different mental models. And I give different examples of, of different types of models we carry around. Once we recognize that, 
whether we're doing public speaking or email or just a conversation, we can start to be more effective into how we communicate with someone else who carries a different mental model in his or her head. Yeah, it's putting together a structure around what you say, or at least understand the structure that other people would be using. And I would say it's one of the constructs from psychology that I'm happy to see increasingly moving into management because it has a lot of traction in the academic world. And, and I think now people are starting to realize that there's a very applied sense of mental models. Absolutely. Yeah, we all benefit from it. And networking. I know we, we talked a little bit about building network and just you're absolutely right. I've been told many times that it's important. I have never been told how to. I figure it out. But if we had to replay the tape and you had to tell somebody who's starting in life or his career, how do you go about building a network or, or what that even mean maybe? Yeah, unfortunately, because we're not taught, people get this sense of networking almost from TV or Hollywood or just what they might see some others do. And for most people, they think of networking as collecting business cards or adding people on LinkedIn. Yep. And you know, that, is, that is not networking. Saying someone on LinkedIn is in your network just because you add them. That's like saying someone who you swipe right on on a dating app is now your significant other. All you've done is taken that, that first step of just getting a match. Really, what professional networkers understand, networking is about relationships. It is about building a relationship with someone. It is about creating trust. It is something that takes time to do, and it's not about how many cards can I get, how big is my Rolodex or my LinkedIn connection. And once you build those relationships, later that relationship will be available to you to help you. Equally important, a lot of people think of networking as, okay, I need a job, time to go network, right? Time to get a new job. And certainly networking does help us get jobs, but people who really are master networkers understand it's not just about jobs. In fact, Keith Razi, who is a, a great networker, he says, anytime I have a challenge, I know someone in my network can really go and help me solve this problem. And really how I think about networking, it's similar to how we think about our cell phones. We talk about how the cell phone is an extension of us. I no longer have to memorize lots of trivia and, and data because if I need to recall it, instead of keeping it in my head, I just keep it in my cell phone, pull it out of my pocket, look up the data when I need it. And so the cell phone's an extension of, of my knowledge. Master networkers think of networking this way. It's not about what I can do. It's about what I and my entire network can do. And my network is an extension of myself. And if you can create this mental shift to go from, okay, I need to collect business cards. And then one day I'm going to look for a job and I'll pick up a business card and say, hey, we met three years ago. Do you have a job for me? When you shift to, I'm going to meet people and build relationships. And now I have this extensive network that I can use to solve any problem that comes to me, now I am much more effective. And um, really, I want to emphasize this because that concept applies to all these skills. It's not about a do ABC and now you're better. It's about getting that mental shift. It's about recognizing in the case of communication, 
it's not just using words more clearly. It's about shifting to recognizing we have different mental models, right? And once you get this fundamental shift, you become so much more effective in each of these skills. Absolutely. And then the, the next one, an extension of networking, when you start to engage in conversation where you could gain something or a mutual gain, you start negotiating. Of course, one of the biggest negotiation in our careers would be the, the job offer. So let's talk about negotiation and how it's important and how we can get better at this. Yeah, let me set the stage for this. Imagine, if you will, that you're 25 years old and you're negotiating a job offer and they're offering 70,000 euro. So you go and negotiate and just negotiate a little and you get 71,000 euro. Right? That's not a heavy lift. We can certainly imagine going from 70 to 71,000. And now at this point, we do nothing else. We sit in that job the next 40 years. Well, what happened? We got 1,000 euro more for 40 years. We just earned 40,000 euros. One little negotiation, not even a, a big lift, 40,000 euros. But of course, we know we're not going to sit in this job for the next 40 years. We know we're going to take other jobs and negotiate that. We know we're going to negotiate raises. In fact, learning to negotiate, not about being a master negotiator, not about being the best in the world, just negotiating a little better literally will yield us tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of euro in benefit over our lifetime. But of course, Good networkers know it's not just sitting across the table. We give that example, and I'll, I'll circle back to some other ways we can negotiate it. But we negotiate all the time. We negotiate, obviously, with vendors and partners and suppliers. We negotiate even with our coworkers. We negotiate when we're sitting around a table and dividing up a project. We negotiate on our boss pushing us to, to get it done faster and saying, well, we can do that, but we have to trade this off. We negotiate, okay, where are you going to work on? Uh, neither of us wants to work on this part of the project. It's not so exciting, but okay, someone has to. So I'll do some of this, and if you do some of that. We negotiate all the time. And while the job negotiation is the most obvious of, hey, I got a 1,000 euro more, I see the direct benefit, being a better negotiator in all these areas yields these returns. And in fact, that example of just doing 1% to 2% better Imagine if you do that with your leadership, your communication, your ability to interview, your ability to network. If in all these skills we just did a little bit better over the course of our decades in our career, it's going to be additive and accumulative, just like we saw with that one negotiation yielding returns over 40 years. Now, to the question you asked about how can we negotiate a job offer – most people think of it as, okay, it's about salary, maybe salary and benefits, maybe some stock options if you do startup companies, and it's pretty narrow. And those are all zero-sum opportunities. Zero-sum is because every extra dollar you give me is one less dollar in your pocket. And certainly these things are important. But we also want to think about, good negotiators know about how to enlarge the pie and how to think about other things we can bring in. And so in our negotiations for our compensation, we want to think about things like title, responsibility, career path. 
what kind of training they might provide, maybe even location of where you're going to work. If there's multiple locations in a company, certain amounts of flexibility or responsibility. My father used to put into his contract, my father was a doctor, and so he would get sent to medical training. All doctors, of course, have to take continuing medical education credits. But he would negotiate that he could choose one of the one of the things he went to. And so he would line that up with a family trip. Very commonly when they do these, you'll go for a week or a couple of days and you'll take some medical training to keep up to date. They do it in sometimes fun places like Las Vegas or Orlando because they know mm-hmm. people want to come to the fun places. And so he would, I remember we did one in Orlando where we did a family trip. So my brother, mother, and I, we'd go off to Disneyland or Disney World, and he would do training for a couple of days. But of course, the hotel was paid for by the company. They were paying for a room for him. They didn't care how many people were in it. And so even though it wasn't more cash in his pocket, he was effectively saving money because our vacation cost less because he negotiated. He could pick and he picked a location we were going to go to on a family vacation anyway. So you can be creative. Don't just think about directly salary and bonus and benefits and stock options. There's a lot more you can add into it. And I'm picking a common thread here in, in the different skills is that in, in many cases, it's about doing the, the mental shift, right? Whether it's communication, interview, networking, and here negotiations. I, I think what you're highlighting is that we come to these things with default expectation that we don't necessarily challenge and you're helping people to think this through, basically. And when you do this shift, not only do you see more opportunities, not only do you see, for example, networking, it's not just for finding a job, but it's for all these other challenges. But also we start to recognize that we have more opportunities to develop these skills. If you just think of negotiations as sitting across the table negotiating that job offer, you practice your negotiations once every five years, let's say. So it's not a lot of skill building. When you recognize that negotiations are sitting across the table from your coworker and saying, how are we going to divide up this project and what negotiation skills can I use here? Now you're better practicing these skills, you're developing them, and so you're going to grow faster. So the mental shift lets us see more opportunities to develop and more opportunities to apply these skills, both of which are going to advance our careers. Another one which, at least for me, was a mental shift because when we talk about ethics, I think more about the obligation or the basic human commonalities that we have to be mindful of. But you're considering it as one of the the skills, right, of what we should be um, thinking about for our our careers. Absolutely. Now, this is both because companies are saying they want employees who have thought through ethical issues. We see certainly here in the U.S., as we look at the younger generations, they are saying it is important not just to get a lot of money, but also to act ethically, to think about the impact on the community locally, globally. This is important. And I can say for myself personally, I really believe we have to do better as a society, I say this in a general global scale, about being more ethical in our behavior. And that begins at the individual level, those of us just in our own daily decisions, and then even very locally in our companies. How do we make sure our companies just think about things ethically? If we go back 50 years, we used to say, 
okay, we generate waste and it just goes to the trash bin and that's all we have to worry about. And we didn't think about recycling. We didn't think about the larger impact. We've, of course, realized today it's not as simple as saying, yeah, there's a byproduct and I just throw it away and I never have to think about it again. We know it comes back. We know there's global impact with global warming, with landfills, and we have to think more holistically. The same thing needs to be applied to ethics. We can't think about, I did this, I did the transaction, I made the money, that's the end of the story. We have to think about what are the secondary effects, what's the long-term effects, how is this going to impact society as a whole, and even come back and impact us in the long run. So I think over the next few decades, we're going to start to focus on ethics the same way we have focused on the environment, recognizing it is all an interconnected system and we have to be more thoughtful in how we approach decisions. And not just something that you trade profit for or that you had to strike a deal with other metrics in order to increase ethics and then reduce productivity or profit. It, it has to go together. Absolutely. Just like with the environment, we said, look, yes, we could save money by doing this, but we understand it's better to lower our profit margins or lower some sales because the environmental impact and protecting that's much more important. The same thing is true with ethics. It's not a simple trade-off. We often think about doing trade-offs in business, but there are certain lines that you really can't cross. And unfortunately, we do sometimes we need to, to shift and realize These are not lines we should be crossing. And then another skills, and I wanted to keep that for the end, leadership. And obviously, leadership and management are, are two different things. But let's talk about leadership, what you mean by that, just because I, I found that people have different mental models when they think about leadership. And how should we develop that? What kind of leadership makes more sense nowadays and in the future in developing our careers? Companies universally have been talking about how they want to hire leaders. Most people think of leadership positionally. Positional leadership means authority coming from your position. We all know the CEO can make certain decisions, hire people, fire people, direction of the company. Certainly managers can do that. And that's what we often think of as leadership. And especially junior people tend to think, I'll be a leader once I get this title, once I get this role. Companies want you to be a leader starting from day one. True leadership is not positional. It doesn't come from your title. It comes from influence. And influential leadership can be done anywhere at the table, whether you're saying at the head of the table or completely on the other side. It's about saying, I have a belief, I have a direction, I have a vision, and I'm going to convince folks that this is where we should go, not because I can order you to do, but because I can make a compelling argument and influence and inspire people to do. And this is what companies want to see. And good leaders know leadership is not something that is fixed. It's not, I'm the leader of this team. How dare you say something and rally the, the troops to go in this direction? Right Now, if you're completely conflicting me and, and putting us in a different direction, that could be a problem. But if I'm saying, hey, everyone, here's the goal, here's where we want to go, and you stand up and say, I have an idea how to get there. I know a process or I know how we can do that goal and even something more. If you're additive in your approach, it doesn't matter that you don't have the title. And learning to do that makes you so much more effective and powerful at work. And that's what companies want to see. 
And this is true even if you say, I never want to be a manager, I never want to be a leader, I want to be an individual contributor, leadership skills are going to help you be more effective in that role. And it turns out, even if you never want to stand up and say, hey, everyone, I have an idea, even if you just want to listen to what other people are proposing and follow along and be a pure follower, never a leader, even then, leadership skills will help you be a more effective follower. So these are skills worth developing, no matter your career goals, no matter your title. And I think that it connects with the concept of mental models here, because to influence people in, in thoughts, in emotion, in actions, you have to communicate something that make them tick or think differently. And I think you need to reverse engineering what makes people tick or at least give them something that change their way of thinking. And to me, and again, maybe that's my own mental model because I'm in ex-academics, but I, I tend to follow thought that's structured or that show me the world in a different way. So I, I, I see a lot of commonality here between your approach to communication and leadership. You've hit the nail on the head there. Certainly there are books that dive into any single one of these topics. One reason I wanted to put them all together, one reason was because I know broadly people are not being exposed to them, but equally important, it's that these skills all build on each other and reinforce each other. Good leaders know how to negotiate. Good negotiators know how to communicate. Good communicators understand the different parts of the company and the corporate culture that they're in. These skills all build and reinforce each other. And so learning one in a vacuum, that's good. You're going to get more effective. But learning how you can use each of these skills to reinforce each other is going to make you significantly more effective. Yeah, they do come as a package and they nicely complement each other. Now, to apply it as an individual, I see how I can benefit from that and the different mental shift and the skills to to develop. I see that as a contributor. As a even as a father, I have two fantastic young girls. I want to make sure that they learn that or they read your book or they get that kind of knowledge because I see how they will benefit from doing that a bit faster than their father had to learn that. But to make it work in an organization, to make sure that we enable that, have you seen any case where company change how they, they train, how they coach, or was it HR who took on a different approach to, to skilling? Are there cases where we, we made that work basically outside of teaching it to in, in, in academia when that happened? We traditionally think about teaching in the classic lecture model. And I, I say lecture, it could be one person standing in front of a room. It could be a broadcast like this. It could even be a book. It's where one person has knowledge and there's a unidirectional, I am going to share this knowledge with the audience. That certainly works. It worked for us in universities and it works for certain types of training. A lot of HR training, if it's you want to get better at using Excel, all right, we're going to do a class, we're going to teach you the macros. If it's we're rolling out a new accounting system, we're going to teach you how to do that. We typically do this just-in-time knowledge transfer, and that works when you need to learn knowledge. These are different. This is not a simple knowledge transfer. There is no one, two, three process for being a leader. These are conceptual ideas. 
we need to teach them differently. The way we teach these at MIT, it's the same way that business schools have been teaching it for decades. Business schools often approach this by using the case method, by using class discussion, and by having a diverse set of opinions. Because there's no one way to communicate, no one way to be a leader, you want to get that diverse set of ideas. Now, when business schools do it, they take someone who's ex-military, someone who's a former teacher, a former consultant, a former software engineer, put them in the room together, and they get their diverse perspectives. What companies can do is they can create these peer learning groups, and you can do it at, at different sizes, depending on what works for you. And you bring people together and you say, we're going to look at a topic. We're going to talk about communication. We're going to explore a book. We're going to listen to a podcast. And then we're going to discuss it and get those perspectives. And so you get this diversity of thought that gives you a richer understanding and develops the skills. So HR and corporations needs to shift from the just in time, we're going to send you to a seminar, you're going to take notes, you're going to learn one, two, three, and now you're an expert. That can still work, again, for knowledge that people need to have, like updates to GDPR, let's say. But when it comes to learning these skills, they need to shift that model to a more continuous group discussion, say a group that meets once a month or every other week and explores these ideas and builds out a much richer understanding. I think this is a profound lesson for um, teaching and and learning, right? Bringing this diversity of view for skills that can have grayer contour. Because it's when we talk about communication, leadership, there's so many ways you can define that. There's so many mental models. I I see a great point here in in exploring that and forging your own idea around that learning learning by playing the game basically rather than studying the rules of the game. I, I think that's the the insight here for the type of knowledge that's a bit more particular or a bit more applied. Obviously, you're not going to learn the law of physics or how to do mathematics by guessing, but there's a lot of value in in poking, trying guessing, discussing what we think is good communication or good negotiation. No one ever learned to play football by reading a book, right? You have to be on the field. You have to be kicking the ball around and practicing. Now, you can also learn sometimes. You watch videos of other people playing. You see how they're doing it. But you have to be in it. You can't just read the book and take notes. We know, let's take the classic skill of public speaking. Again, you can't learn by reading a book. You go up, you speak, you practice, you try, you learn. You can also watch other great speakers. You can learn from them. You can get notes from them. You can see what they do. But we have to try and engage, and that applies to all these skills. You're not going to learn them simply by reading a book. You have to live them and experience them. And now we don't simply want to learn to do it on the job. The first time you go and negotiate, Okay, you've read a book, but you haven't practiced. So can we practice in small groups? Can we discuss how to approach it? Can we listen to someone else's negotiation and learn from that, gain these real-world examples and experiences rather than going out the first time and, and stumbling? So yes, it is about practicing and exploring and living and engaging with others. And you can start by reading the book or listening to the podcast, but you have to go beyond that if you want to be really effective in your learning and advancement. And is, is this why you created the, uh, the app that goes with the book? 
The app helps. It doesn't fully replace this. So one of the challenges that I found when I read a book like this is you say, oh, this is, this is great, so much good advice, really like this. And then you're done reading it and you move on and you're busy with your children and your job and another book. And a month later you say, yeah, I think there were some good tips there. But it's hard to remember. And especially as you're trying to build new habits, we know you, you can't build more than one, maybe two new habits at a time. So you have to put some of this aside and you're going to forget it weeks and months down the road. The app was created to basically help do reinforcement. We know it's well established that spaced repetition is the best way for us to learn and remember skills. And so you're not going to go back to the book and say, let me reread this weeks later. The app, which is free to download and does not record any data, doesn't take anything, it's just content we put on your phone for free, Android and Apple, each day it's going to pop up a tip. It's going to pop up one of the things from the book, a reminder, a quote, a lesson, and that's going to help reinforce it. You don't have to open the app because no one wants to sit there and remember to open an app. It's just going to do a little pop-up notification and remind you of something. You look at it for three seconds and then swipe it away. And this is going to build the reinforcement. It's also valuable because if you do go into a negotiation or go into an interview or a networking event and you're saying, oh, now, quick, I need to remember what all these things were, you can open it up and then you can quickly flip through what those tips were in a specific category and kind of do a quick refresher course right before you step into that networking event or whatever it is you're trying to refresh on. Wow, it's, it's a great addition. I, I can see the impact it, it can have. Uh, final question for you, Mark. Where can we learn more about your work and how can we contact you? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can learn more about the book, including where to get. You can contact me or follow me on social media. You can download the app from there. There are links that will take you to the Android and iPhone stores. There's also a number of free resources, links to other sites, references that I have in the book and where you can go and learn more, as well as some free downloads. If you would like to create this type of training program at your organization, whether it's your company, whether it's an independent organization you're part of, or even just saying my organization's not doing it, but I want to get a group of friends and people I know together so we can learn, there is a free download that explains how you can set this up within your company or on your own. So you can create this group and how you can apply it. And you can either use, as you download and learn how to do this, you can use a template that's designed for the book where you can just take all that content, or you can substitute your own content. You can pick a different book. You can just pick podcasts. You can pick content online and use that instead of the book. This is going to be a tool that's going to help you learn no matter what content you want to use, no matter how you want to advance. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This was Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time.